Hope you have your Bibles out. This is the launch of our new series. We're going to be looking at John chapter 2. And the series title is Summer in Galilee. We're going to look at the events of Jesus that happened in the Galilee region. And while you're opening up your Bibles, let's all get our Bibles out. Let's everybody get one. If you didn't bring one, there should be one right in the back of that pew in front of you. John chapter 2. I'm going to rewind you all the way to March of 1990. Denise and I were about to get married. And I was planning the wedding with her. We're planning the honeymoon. And she told me before we got married that people don't give money at southern weddings. They give dish towels and crock pots and blenders. I didn't believe her. I'm from the north. You get loads of money. In fact, I was counting on receiving money because I had put everything I had into getting us to Mexico for our honeymoon. Not only did we need wedding money for when we got there, because I really didn't even have the money for food for all of our meals, I didn't have the money that I was going to need when we got back for our rent in our apartment. It ended up that Denise was right. The grand total that we received at our wedding was $75. Checks. I didn't have time to cash them. We're about to see another couple as cash poor as we were at their own wedding. It's going to be in John chapter 2. So let me give you some background in order to get us ready. Now, there's a whole backside of that story of how God provided miraculously for us. I would love to tell you, except you have to take me out to eat because I still don't have any money. (laughs) It's an amazing story. And it really is. I would love to tell you that sometime. In order to understand John's gospel, we need to know the purpose for why we wrote it. That makes sense, right? I mean, if we're going to be really truly students of God's word, you just can't open up a book of the Bible and plunge into it without really having some idea, at least, of what the author's intent was. There's four Gospels. Some call Acts the fifth Gospel. But there's really four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And each of them wrote their Gospel account with a different purpose. And John is going to be so clear in telling us, here's why I wrote this gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in John chapter 20. You can't get more clear than this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so. Now just right there, if I were you and I had your Bible, I would be underlining it for you. And I would put it in the margin, purpose of the book. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is why John wrote his gospel. So that people could see Jesus, believe in him, believe that he's the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God. And then believe in him, trust in him, and have life in his name. Now, did you notice what John said in verse 30 there? John chapter 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs. Signs. Now, can you all look at me for a second? This is really important. 
It's actually the entire sermon today is about this word signs. Signs always point to a reality greater than themselves. Signs always point to a reality greater than themselves. Think of a highway sign. You're driving down the highway. There's a sign that is telling you of something that is coming up ahead. An exit, a rest area, restaurants that you can pull over, get something to eat. Signs always tell you about something beyond themselves. In this case, a biblical sign, something that is greater than themselves. I'm going to show you, we're going to look at in John chapter 2, the first of seven signs that are in the Gospel of John. And they're all going to help us, this one included, believe in Jesus the Messiah the Son of God, so that we can have life in His name. Here's the very first of the seven signs. I'm going to give you the setting, I'm going to give you the significance, and then we're going to see the Savior. Here we go, here's the setting. John chapter 2, where is Jesus? He's in the northern part of Israel called Galilee. I'm going to stack it up for you. If you just want a picture of a map of Israel in the first century, you've got way up north, the Galilee region, in the middle, you've got Samaria. Those are half-bred Jews. They weren't liked by the Jews, and they didn't like the Jews. They're in the middle between Galilee and the southern area, Judea. That's where Jerusalem, Jerusalem is, way down south. We're up in the Galilee region. We're going to be up there all summer. And to a pious Jew, a very devout, serious Jew, Galilee was considered the progressive and liberal part of Israel. It was inundated with both Jews and Gentiles, which were non-Jewish people. Most of us are Gentiles. Give a little history. Alexander the Great, I'm sure you've heard of him. He conquered this region about 360 years before Christ was born. Here's what Alexander the Great wanted to do. He wanted to unify his entire empire. How is he going to do it? He's going to get everybody speaking the same language, Greek language, and all, in, all living out the same or in the same culture, Greek culture. So he spread around his empire what's called Hellenization, the spread of the Greek language and the Greek culture. He's brilliant. If you want to unify an empire, get them all speaking the same language, all loving the same culture. Judea, way down south that I told you about where Jerusalem is, they hated the Greek culture. They resisted the Greek influence. They viewed those up in Galilee, both Gentiles and Jews, as being corrupt and liberal. They weren't going to embrace Hellenization. But that's not true with Galilee. Galilee was a cultural melting pot. They had pagan temples. They had pagan statues. They had Roman baths, Roman theaters. They had the latest fads, the hottest trends. All around the Roman Empire, you could find it in Galilee. You would never find it down south in Judea. In fact, a devout Jew considered it scandalous for a fellow Jew to even visit up in Galilee, much less be from there. By the way, don't you remember earlier in the Gospels when Nathaniel, future disciple of Christ, asked Philip 
when he was told that Jesus of Nazareth was a Jewish Messiah, here's what he says. Here's what Nathaniel said to Philip about Jesus. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was the mindset. Nazareth is up north. It's up in Galilee. There can't be anything religious up there. That's a liberal section of Israel. Now how odd... Since we're going to learn later, actually, if you read the Gospel of John, way at the end, Nathaniel actually grew up in a town in Galilee, about nine miles from Nazareth, and it's called Cana. That's where Nathaniel is from. He even had a bad view to the Jews that lived there. But it's to Cana that Jesus goes, in fact, to attend a wedding. And we're going to read about it in John chapter 2. I just gave you the setting Let's look at the sign. John tells us the wedding takes place, look at verse 1, chapter 2, on the third day. Now, you might know Jewish calendaring well enough to know that their week began Sunday. Our week begins Mondays. Their Sabbath was a Saturday. The first day of their week was a Sunday. So you might be thinking, well, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, well, he's talking about Tuesday, but that's not what he's talking about. That's not what John meant on the third day. What he means is the third day from leaving Bethany across the Jordan where Jesus just was, way down south of Israel. They traveled up north, up to this wedding, over into Cana, which is up in Galilee. It's the third day of their journey. They finally get there. They make it to Cana. In fact, according to the Jewish Mishnah, that's a book of oral teachings, a Jewish wedding actually would almost always start on a Wednesday if you were a virgin and never married before. If you were married before, maybe your husband died and you get married again, then your wedding will start on a Thursday. This is how the Jewish people did it. So John probably means the third day since leaving Bethany across the Jordan. It's likely a Wednesday when John 2 verse 1 begins. And he had gone to this wedding with a few disciples, likely five of them at this point. Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Nathaniel. And a Jewish wedding typically lasted for an entire week. Now think of that, paying for that wedding That'd be pretty amazing. I wouldn't think that they stayed together for the entire week. They would go about their day during the evening or during the day, then come back in the evening for more celebration. But it, took, it typically was a week full of feasting and celebration when a Jewish person had a wedding. And the fact that Jesus and his family were there, look at verse 12. Let's be students of God's word. Look at verse 12. We're going to get our bearings. It indicates this is probably a relative that's getting married. But during the wedding, a crisis hits. The wine ran out. And we're Americans. We're thinking it's no big deal. Just go to a beverage store. Most of our grocery stores have wine now. Not a big deal. This was a crisis for them. In fact, it was an absolutely terrible social faux pas. One that would never have been forgotten in the community. It would have been slanderous. You would have been ashamed. And everybody forever, the rest of your life, would have remembered, hey, you're the one that had the wedding where the wine ran out. 
This is the mindset of the Jewish people during their weddings. I'll tell you why in a little bit. In fact, several commentators even suggest, now hear this, you ready? They suggest that litigation by the bride's family was possible against the groom's family who had to provide. Here it's usually the bride's family in our culture that pays for the wedding. In this day and age, it was the groom's family. And the bride could even sue you if your wine ran out or if you fell short of the food. This is an amazing, different world. Seems the guests were unaware, but Mary, the mother of Jesus, knew and she quietly came to her son to tell him. And Jesus, his answer to her, look at verse 4, was woman. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, younger people whose parents are alive, I don't think that you have a license to start talking to your mom like this. Woman, man, I would not do that to your wives. I don't think that's going to bode well for you. But in this culture, that's not a term of disrespect. Here it would be. It's like saying the southern word ma'am. Or our word, our British word, lady. It was a gentle word, but there is a rebuke. There is a correction in Jesus in his words to Mary. Because there's a shift that begins to occur in this wedding. Yes, she is his earthly mother. But the shift that he is communicating to her is that my, my obedience, my greater obedience is to my heavenly father. Not you, mom. He says to her, if you paraphrase, why are you involving me now? For my hour has not yet come. Now you've got to be a really good student of John's gospel Read through the entire book, and you're going to keep seeing this word hour over and over and over. But it's not until John 12 that you're going to really understand what it means. Because in John 12, verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So what you need to know is when Jesus says to his mother, My hour has not yet come, what he means is the time of my death on the cross where I am glorified, seen for who I am, the Christ, the Son of God, that's not yet come. That's actually about Three more years from John 2. It's about another three years from this wedding in Cana. He has just begun. In fact, this wedding is launching his public ministry. That's going to lead him eventually to the cross to die. Jesus is telling Mary that I live by a clock that is different than yours. And your time, mother, is not going to always be my time. And my time is the greater authority. But I want you to hear about Jesus for a moment. I want you to see his heart. He had no desire for the groom and the groom's parents to be humiliated by this crisis. They had run out of wine. There could be litigation. There will be shame forever. The entire town of Cana will talk about this while they're the rest of their lives. He had no desire for them to be humiliated, threatened, 
with the joy being robbed in their wedding. So he doesn't refuse. In fact, Mary senses this. And in verse 5, she says to the servants, this is her faith, by the way. Mary has great faith. Do, says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She doesn't know what he's going to do. But she believes he'll do something. Now, John gives us a very interesting parenthetical. It's not really parenthetical, but it's a little bit of an add-on information that's absolutely critical to the story, if you're going to understand this sign. Verse 6, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, and each one of them held 20 to 30 gallons. They're not made out of clay. They are hewn. They are chiseled out of stone. And the Jewish people were taught that you never ever ate with unclean hands that were stained. Now listen, when I say unclean hands, every mom in here, you're thinking, kids, get to the sink, wash with soap, dry off, get back to the dinner table. That's not the unclean hands that they have in mind. They're talking about moral filth, unrighteousness, not physical filth of bacteria. So the Jewish people were taught you never ever ate with spiritually unclean hands that were stained by moral filth or you would be unfit for serving and worshiping God. That's what they believed. In fact, they believed that if you ate with unclean hands, there was a demon whose name was Shepta that would reside on those unclean hands. And when you brought food, they didn't have forks and knives. They sopped up their food with bread. They usually have a gravy in their meat and in their sauces. They would use the bread and bring it to their mouths. And that demon could be transferred into your mouth and down into your soul to plague you. That's what they viewed. That's what they believed. So you don't eat with unclean un or immoral hands. I mean, after all, didn't the psalmist say, and don't we sometimes pray prayers of confession before we worship, Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, here's what the Jewish people did wrong. They misunderstood that verse. And they created a system in Judaism, the religion of the Jews, that believed that a person could be made pure in the heart. You could become unrighteous by performing ceremonial cleansings with water that is set aside only for the purpose of purification. So these six stone water jars had water in them. That's not to drink. That's not to add into your food. That's to clean your hands and your feet morally before you even begin feasting and celebrating. This was so important to the Jewish people. They actually had 35 pages in that Mishnah that had all kinds of instructions for a ceremonial cleansing of your hands and the daily and the uh, daily implements and the dishes. They even instructed how do you clean your dishes from moral filth. They believed if you touched a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, then it was contaminated morally and it needed water from these purification jars to cleanse it. So you've got 200 years before Christ came. 
And what used to be primarily something that the priests would do before they would serve in the tabernacle or the temple now became mandated for all the Jewish people. You've got to observe your purity rituals. Well, would you like to know how they did it? Well, of course you would. Here's what would happen. Before every meal, and if, by the way, if you were really particularly devout and pious, between each course of the meal... Your hands would be washed from water from these jars with that water devoted for this purpose. And the way that that would work is this. A servant in that home would take what they measured out, one and a half eggshells of water. They didn't have six fluid ounces. They would take an eggshell, measure it out, one and a half, and you would hold your hands up. And the servant would pour the water over your fingertips and that water would come down on both hands off of the wrist. And they would take this fist and clean it, this fist and clean it. But now your hands are contaminated with filthy water. So they would take one more time, the servant, another egg shell and a half of water. And this time your hands are down and they would pour it from your wrist to let it fall off your fingers. Now you are morally clean outwardly and morally clean inwardly. That's what they believed. Jesus said to the servants, verse 7, fill those jars with water. By the way, why did he say that? Because all the guests had already come and they used so much of that water to get them clean. Not only their feet, they would do it with their, not only their hands, they would do it with their feet as well. So he said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some or draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, because they don't know what they're drinking anymore, is the implication. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, a lot of us are so familiar with this event that we miss the details. Very easy to do. But have you noticed here that the master of the feast did not know where it came from and expresses his astonishment, listen, to the bridegroom, not to Jesus. Jesus quietly performed this miracle. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And it seems the only ones who knew what he had done were the servants, his disciples, and likely, it would seem, his mother. And John says in verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now the main question that remains then for the rest of this message is, What's the significance of this sign? Now, I actually made a mistake earlier. I told you we're going to look at the setting, the significance, and the Savior. That was two weeks ago. We're actually looking at the setting, the sign, and now we're going to look at the significance. Here we go. Here's the meat of the message. Are you ready? All of that was just to help you understand the culture that leads up to a good understanding of the significance of this sign. Hey, just think of the word significance. 
just think of it. You're, it's on the screen. Just look at the root word. You know, it kind of dawned on me that the word significance, which is defined as meaning in word, finding the meaning in a word or event, it actually has the root word sign in it. So here's what we're going to try to do. What then is the significance, the meaning of this miracle that Jesus did, turning this water into this wine? What's the significance of this? Remember what John wrote. What he did, why John put it in his gospel, is to help us believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one sent from God. He is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we can have life. So that's the purpose of this. What's the significance? Well, weddings were, as they are today, incredibly joyful events. They are full of celebration. In fact, listen, Jewish grandmoms, Here's what they would say. They would often say it to their grandkids. I should only live to see your wedding. In fact, Italian grandmothers say the same thing. I should only live to see your wedding. I mean, it was a dominant part of the joy in the Jewish culture. And a regular part of the wedding celebration and Jewish life altogether, I want you to hear this, was wine. And wine was a symbol of joy. Now, if you have not heard really anything that I've said yet in this sermon, you're going to be just fine if you pick it up from what I just said to the rest of this message. Wine is a symbol of joy in the entire Bible. In fact, the rabbis had a saying. These are Jewish pastors at the time of Christ. Without wine, there is no joy. Now, i got to be a little bit careful because some of you are going to run out of here and hit the beverage store and start drinking like crazy. Wine in the Bible, they believe, experts say, was watered down to be two to three parts water to one part wine. A lot weaker than what you typically get in our day. In fact, in the Bible there was wine and then Proverbs talks about strong drink. Strong drink had a whole lot higher alcohol content. Didn't mean you can't get drunk with wine. You can, but the Bible speaks a lot against getting drunk, but it doesn't speak against having wine. So imagine a culture with warm, tepid water. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have ice cubes. Often not fit to drink, and you're going to understand even more why they appreciated wine so much. It fermented incredibly quickly in that culture. Ecclesiastes 9, Solomon says, Go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. So wine is linked all through the Bible with joy, with a merry heart. Psalm 104, you bring forth from the earth And wine to gladden the heart of man. So wine can gladden the heart of man. That doesn't mean you're getting buzzed. It doesn't mean you're getting drunk and you're just giggling all the time. That's not what Proverbs, that's not what the psalmist means here. It just means there's an association with wine and joy. And it holds that association from the Old Testament to the New So I'm trying to impress on you, are you seeing the Jewish perspective and the importance of wine as it pertains especially to a wedding? It was a crisis to run out of wine. In fact, it was equivalent to saying 
that this was an unhappy marriage that nobody wanted. That would have been the subliminal message in this crisis. So what's the significance of this miracle? I'm going to give you a four. I think there's a lot more. I think I actually I missed a lot. I had to actually stop studying this because it was getting longer and longer, and it's already long enough. So here's the four things. First, thing to note about what this says of Jesus is this. Jesus gives true joy. Listen, he's turning water into wine. What you're seeing by this sign is about Jesus, and Jesus gives true joy. There's 4,200 religions on this planet in our day. Did you know that? And 4,199 of them cannot give true joy because it's all about what you have to do to please a deity. It's all about your performance. Listen, it is so bizarre that Christianity is literally the only religion on the planet where the deity does and performs what we needed to be done. It's the only one. So you've got all of these religions that cannot truly give true joy because it's a gift from God himself when you enter into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Jesus later says, John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Full. Do you understand, Christian? That the aim of God is to fill you with joy. His joy, not the joy and happiness that is very temporary that this world offers. But the permanency of the joy of God is being filled in your heart. God wants your joy to be full and it can only be through Jesus. So here we go. Jesus told the servants, fill the stone jars. And how many do they hold? The text says very deliberately, listen, when it's this in particular, you know there's a reason for it. it held, they, they held between 20 and 30 gallons of water. So we're going to estimate, actually it's not even estimate, just calculate, 120 to 180 gallons of water. There's six stone jars. If they're all 20, that's a 120 amount. And if they're all 30, that's 180. And it's all being transformed into wine. If we were to standardize this to today's measurements, here's what it is. You ready? Now listen to this. It's pretty amazing. Jesus created 800 bottles of fine wine and provided it for the groom and the, and the bride for the joy of their wedding. Do you understand that was extravagantly more than necessary? They're not going to drink even a fraction of that at this wedding. But that's how Jesus loves to get. So the first significance is that when God gives joy, he's not going to give you joy in a small dose. His, his goal is to give you joy to the fullest, that your heart is overflowing with joy. He turns the water of your life's miseries and struggles and trials into the wine of glad joy. This is what Jesus does. So has your joy ebbed? Has difficulties in life leached it away? 
Are you finding yourself in a crisis right now and you don't have a whole lot of joy? I'm going to tell you, be like Mary. Go back to Jesus, your Savior, and ask him, can you do anything about it? And he's going to tell you, yes, because I don't want my people joyless. He has the good wine of joy for you. He is full of compassion. And his goal is to fill you with joy. But there's another significance. There's actually three more. I'm going a little quicker. The second significance of this event is found in the servants, actually. Notice the simplicity of their faithful obedience, so unlike many of us. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. Do you understand what that would have required for them? Well, even before I explain that, just notice they didn't demand to know the reason. They didn't say, oh, well, why? Tell us why you want us to fill the jars with water. And Jesus never gave them the next instruction until they completed the first instruction. And there's a lot of us. We want to know the whole picture. We want the why question answered. Jesus is going to ask you something, and you're going to be wanting to say, why? Give me the overall reason, and then I can be good to do it. And he's going to say, listen, can you just trust me at my word? Do what I'm telling you, even when it doesn't make sense. And the full picture will unfold eventually. This is called faith. And obedience. He never told them he was going to turn the water into the best wine of the wedding. They had to obey something that made no sense. In fact, they had to go to the well. They're not going to pick up the stone jars and go to the well. They are incredibly heavy. And once they're filled with 20 to 30 gallons of water, well, let me give you a little background. Let me just give you some stone cold facts. Figure that the six stone jars, they all held, uh, let's just take the median, the medium average, 150 gallons. Not 120, not 180, let's just say 150 gallons. And each gallon of water weighs, listen, it's pretty easy. It's weighed this from Genesis 1, it's going to weigh this into eternity, I think. Each gallon of water weighs 8.34 pounds, a little over 8 pounds, a little under 8.5. And, and that totals 1,250 pounds of water that they're going to have to go to the well and bring back to fill these stone jars. That was their job. They've already been pouring it on the hands of the guests. They've already been pouring it on the feet of the guests and the purification rites. They're exhausted. They're tired. They've been doing stuff probably for a week or more, getting this whole wedding feast ready. And he tells them, go to the well and draw 1,251 pounds, assuming that they're empty. And he never told them what he was going to do. And they did it. Mary says to him, to the servants, do whatever he tells you, and they obeyed. How great it would be if we would simply do the same. What amazing wonders we will see in our lives if we just take Jesus at his word and be okay because we trust him without knowing the full picture. If he's asking you to do something, even if it doesn't make sense, he's asking you, can you trust for a reason? And his blessings are on the heels of it. But you've got to step by step obey or you will never see those blessings. Third significance there is life in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. John tells us again there were six stone jars for a reason. The number 
Seven, by the way, in the Bible stands for completion and perfection. However, did you know that the number six symbolizes incompletion? There's a reason the mark of the beast is 666. And in Judaism, with all of its rules and all of its purification rituals and 35 pages of how you clean your hands to become morally pure, it was unable to breathe life into anyone. It was a dead religion. It was the religion of the Jewish people and all those laws and all those commands that could not bring joy. And in fact, it did the opposite. It was a burden, an encumbrance. It stripped people of joy. It forced them into a system of ritual that had to be done in exact, exacting detail or God will not put your favor on you, his favor on you. Christianity is the only religion where God did what was needed to save humanity. Which was to come in the person of Jesus. God came in the person of Jesus. He lived sinlessly. He died on that cross as our substitute, the substitute for sinners. And the hour that was to come for Jesus was his death. Where he would make salvation available for any who will trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. See, there's life in Jesus, the Messiah, and you will not find it anywhere else. But I'm going to tell you the final observation, and it's going to be very brief. It's the last one that I have to offer you today. And it's this. Can you hear this? Jesus is saving the best for last. For his people. And all who have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, those who put their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they're going to be drinking new wine, the good wine, meaning they're going to be full of life, full of joy forever and ever. And you might think, well, this life in this earth is not so bad. You've not seen anything yet. Because he always brings the best last. Are you going to be at that wedding? Can I just ask you soberly, pun intended, are you going to be at this wedding? The marriage supper of the Lamb where the groom Jesus marries his bride, the church, made up of his saints. All those who said, I cannot find joy and life through a religion outside of Christ. I've only found it through Christ who could give me a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And I trust you. I submit my life to you. I yield to you. And I'm going to live by your grace and your power for your name and for your glory. That's the only reason and the only way you get an invitation to this marriage supper of the Lamb. Are you going to be at that wedding where Jesus, the bridegroom, is finally, eternally wed to his bride, the church? I actually am going to answer that for you very, very easily. Look at John chapter 2, verse 11. The last part of verse 12, and his disciples believed in him. You don't need to complicate this, friends. 
The Bible doesn't complicate it. It's very simple. Do you believe in Jesus? No, I'm not saying, do you believe that there's a God? Yeah, yeah, they're probably, I'm pretty sure there is a guy named Jesus. I'm not, that's not the faith. That's not the belief that saves anybody. Do you believe that Jesus is the anointed one from the Father in heaven to earth for a purpose to give you life in his name by believing in him? Meaning you trust in him. Meaning you take your life and you say, I give it to you, God. Because I've made a mess of it. And it's yours to begin with. I give it to you. You can have it. And I'm not taking it back. Because I trust that you will get me from here to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's belief. And the disciples believed. And they will be feasting around that table. Will you be feasting around that table? I hope so. But if not, if you don't believe yet, there's still time. If you're alive, you have time. And I would encourage you to just simply call out to the Lord and say, Jesus, I believe. I believe you came from heaven for a purpose, to give your life on that cross for me. I give you my life. Would you save me? That's all you have to do. And he will save you and you will have life in his name. And you will drink new wine for eternity with hearts full of joy. Amen. Let's pray.